there are people who will tell you, if you can do anything else, you ought to do it. If you can't do anything else, if that's such an important part of who you are, if that's so much a fabric of your life, then you, you've got to preach. You've got to be in the ministry. And uh, I think that's the way it turned out for me. Hi, I'm Catherine. I love hearing people's stories. I always have. In 2021, an idea came to me to talk to 10 people I didn't know about a meaningful day in their life. I posted the idea to my neighborhood's Facebook page and connected with 11 people who were willing to share. We met in one of our homes, and these are those conversations. For me, when I hear someone's personal experience, I understand them better. I feel connected to them through common ground or a common feeling, and I always and inevitably learn something from them that helps me in my own life. I don't know what you'll find in these conversations, but I hope it's something good. I'm so grateful all around to everyone who participated, and now to you for listening. I truly hope you enjoy. Let's jump right in. Today's conversation is with Mike. Okay, great. Well, thank you for being here today. Could you just tell me your name and what you want to talk about? Uh, my name is Mike. Uh, I'm a retired Methodist minister, and I am going to share a story about how I uh, came to get to seminary. Okay? Okay, great. To understand that, you have to understand that I felt called to ministry about the time I was 14 years old. My grandfather and my uncle had both been Presbyterian ministers and had made a profound influence on my life. Then when mother and daddy moved to East Texas, there was no Presbyterian church. So they started, uh, joined a Methodist church. And from that point forward, I've been a United Methodist. The most profound influence out of that period of time was the man who came to our church and was our pastor for four or five years and personal family friend for the rest of his life. But I began to sense the call to ministry about the time I was 14. Uh, it was difficult growing up proclaiming that I'd been called to ministry because my peers tend to set me apart and not want to um, have much relationship with me because they were um, thinking that I was goody two-shoes or something, you know, like that. So I had to do a lot of things with people who were specifically church-related and um, committed to the church. And if, if they weren't or if they weren't thinking about church vocation, then it was difficult to be around them. As a consequence, I began to feel uh, like a bit of an outsider. So as I moved toward uh, college, I began to think about what else can I do with my life? What else can I, can I be? Can I do anything but preach? And I built model airplanes all my life, so I thought I wanted to fly. When you were a little boy, did you have a dream about what you wanted to do before the idea of ministry came to you? Before? Yeah. No, I don't think so. As I said, I built model airplanes all my life and started studying some of the uh, history of flight, and especially during World War II, fighter planes, bombers. But um, I even thought for a while about going to the Air Force Academy to go to college. But I decided not to do that. It, I wasn't ready to commit to the uh, military at that point in time. So I got to college and looked for a variety of different other majors to try to find something else to do. Toward the end of my senior year in college, the government instituted a draft lottery which meant that they drew 
birth dates and assigned priority draft status according to your birth date. Uh, my birth date was pretty much in the middle, but pretty certain to be drafted. And I thought I would rather choose what military service I'm going to have than to be drafted. That was important to me because I felt like I had skills that I could use in some place, and I'd always had the interest in flying. Plus, Daddy had been in the Navy when he was in World War II, coming right out of high school. So I signed up for the Navy, was assigned to Officer Candidate School in Pensacola, and was going to learn to be a pilot. About six or seven weeks into that Officer Candidate School, I began to realize that uh, every time the chaplain spoke, I was being uh, filled with a sense of guilt or a sense of uh, remorse or a sense of something's not right. So I finally decided that I need to request a conference with the chaplain. And I got permission from uh, my training officer and I got permission from my commanding officer to go see the chaplain. I talked to that chaplain about my call to ministry. I told him that I felt some conflict about being in the Navy, but that I had tried to decide that I could put off going to seminary for a short term to go to Navy and fulfill my duty to the country. But having been at Pensacola, I just was really struggling and I needed help to stay. And he said, this is an interesting story. He said that during the Korean War, he had been a pilot in the Navy, sitting in an airplane on an aircraft carrier, realizing that he also was called to ministry. And so he came out of the Navy, went back to seminary, got his degree, and went back in the Navy as a chaplain. Well, he said, you know, it certainly sounds like to me your call to ministry is stronger than your call to service in the Navy, and you should consider it and think about leaving the Navy and going to seminary. That's all the encouragement I really needed. Uh, so... To come out of the Navy, you have to go through the chain of command. And the first person you have to see in the chain of command is the uh, student officer who's been in the Navy only 12 weeks. So they are like the senior class. And ordinarily, that would have been people who were coming right out of college, out of fraternities or whatever kind of experience. And they had been in the Navy 11 weeks, and here they were on the 12th week and they are the commander. But in my case, the commanding officer of that senior class that year was actually a Marine captain with Vietnam experience who had decided that he was going to fly and would put himself back through OCS to learn to fly. I went into a room that wasn't much bigger than this. He was there. Uh, there were four or five other young men in there. And when I started talking about being called to ministry, they all started harassing me. This captain turned and said, gentlemen, I'm listening to this man and it will behoove you to be quiet. So silence. He listened, he paid attention, and in the process he said, okay, I'll sign permission for you to go up the chain. So I don't remember all the steps in the chain, but one of the next steps that I got to was to be the commandant of the OCS school at Pensacola. Ordinarily, that's like a Marine colonel or someone of that stature. 
the week that I was trying to come out, that man was on vacation. In his place was a Marine colonel from East Texas, near where I'd grown up. And when I told him my story, he said he had spent hours in foxholes around Da Nang Air Base doing security, trying to figure if he should go back to seminary as a Methodist. <clears throat> he said he decided he couldn't because of his family. But if I felt that I needed to go to seminary, he would help me get out. So he signed off, and now I'm all set. All that's left is to do the paperwork, get a plane, fly home. I do that. I get home. I have to report to the draft board. This is late August, early September, and I don't think I can get in seminary until January. I tell the draft board secretary what I've done, and she says, you're going to be 1A and drafted by then. I said, I can't. I gave up an opportunity to be OCS. She said, I'm sorry. You know, if you're not in seminary, you're going to be drafted. So I called the seminary, and the registrar at the seminary was an alumni of the same college that I'd gone to. He said to me, tomorrow is the last day of late registration. If you can get here by noon, I will get you into seminary. We won't worry about your transcript because I know you graduated from Hendricks. So my fiance at that point in time and I raced to Dallas, met him, got all the admission stuff done, got into seminary. I brought her back. That was a Friday afternoon. I brought her back home. I drove back to Dallas on Sunday and started classes on Monday. And so I was a week behind everybody else, but I was there. Now, I tell that story because it's like an affirmation that that's exactly the way I should have been. If, if, if I'd been any other week in OCS, I probably would have encountered resistance from people. But the two or three people who were in place precisely that week were just providentially there. The Navy also was seeing the Vietnam War wind down. They had more people in the pilot's pipeline than they could actually commission and put in planes. So my class was probably going to be in reserve for a year to 18 months anyway. So they were um, okay about letting people leave OCS, but for me it wasn't about leaving the Navy, and that was a really tough decision. It was about responding to the call to ministry. And through the years, I have found that that call has been affirmed repeatedly. Now, when I talk to you about clarity and certainty, I'm clear I've been called to ministry. I'm clear that that has been the reason for my life. But the certainty has to do with how difficult it's been to provide for a family, how difficult it's been periodically to offer ministry to people who were opposed to what I tried to do, who disagreed with me in the churches I served, and sometimes even crises of faith that I might have experienced gave me a problem with certainty. So I've wrestled with God. I mean, I think all of us wrestle with God somewhere or another. But like Jacob wrestling 
you know, before he crosses the river. We all wrestle and sometimes uh, we suffer from it. But I, I don't think that you can, I don't think most people understand that wrestling with your fears and your doubts is every bit as much a matter of faith as being absolutely certain all the time that everything is just right there. Because it's not. There's, there's questions everybody has to answer. And faith is a, it's a journey that um, has to go through doubts and has to go through uncertainty before it can really be affirmed. Mm. So. Wow. So I kind of want to step back for a second. You said when you were 14, you first felt the call to mm -hmm. ministry. For someone who doesn't really understand what that is or, you know, has never heard that expression, can you just talk about that? Like, what did that feel like? How did you experience that? Was it a thought? Was it a feeling? Were you sitting in church and you were like, oh my goodness, like I could just, <laughs> could you see yourself as a minister? Like, where did that start? What did that feel like? Well, I never not been in church. I, my earliest remember, remembrances outside school or outside the family are about being in church and being around clergy. But my grandfather and my uncle both set examples for me. And so when you're talking about seeing what people might do with their lives, the first thing I would say is profound influences in my life and my family were ministers. And I respected my grandfather. I loved him dearly. When I saw him in the pulpit preaching, it was impressive, and uh, I felt good about it. My uncle, on the other hand, was a young uh, man, and I remember sometime about the time I was 14, he drove up to the house to visit us one day in a red convertible, blue jeans and cowboy boots. And I thought, my goodness, I'd always thought of ministers being black suit and tie, you know? If my uncle can drive a convertible, wear cowboy boots and blue jeans, and still be a minister, that must be pretty cool. So the two influences were there. But the call is deeper than that. The call is a sense of growing into an understanding that something's at work in your life and you're trying to clarify what that is. The minister I referred to in the church that was a lifelong friend got me interested immediately in church camp and Sunday school and vacation Bible school and gave me opportunities to do things in our local church. But he also spent hours talking to me about God, about the church, about Christ, about all these kind of things. And over the years, I began to feel that the most natural thing I could talk about was God, Jesus, the church, theology, and that there was a sense of uh, recognizing that I could be really helpful to people by being in the ministry. Now, the one thing I didn't think I could do was stay in the pulpit and tell people they were going to hell because I'm pointing a finger at them like that. That was not who I was. I, that was one of the biggest things that kept me from uh, jumping right in because I didn't see that hellfire and brimstone approach as the way to be a pastor. Uh, once I got over that and saw that you could teach, you could preach, you could do pastoral care, then it became more inviting to me. But 
I guess like other people will find um, when they're growing up that there's um, something else that occupies their mind or really uh, gets them excited. I found uh, being around uh, other young people who were church-oriented, being around pastors who were setting examples for me, uh, finding books to read about the clergy, about life in the church, uh, that really that really t opened my mind up. And so I can remember browsing the bookstore at church camp for books on ministry and, and this. And you just sort of grow into it. Now, um, there are people who will tell you, if you can do anything else, you ought to do it. If you can't do anything else, if that's such an important part of who you are, if that's so much a fabric of your life, then you, you've got to preach. You've got to be in the ministry. And uh, I think that's the way it turned out for me. I served a local church, and I was in local church for 12 years. But my more fulfilling and more um, satisfying role was as a hospital chaplain. So I was a hospital chaplain for 15 years and in a retirement center for 12. Wow. Okay, so you went to college and you weren't sure, or you, you were trying to do something else. I tried, I tried. What did you end up graduating with? Or like, what did you study? I was a history and political science major. Okay. And then after you graduated, you went into the Navy for a moment, mm -hmm. and then you had that experience and you ended up in seminary. Was seminary what you thought it was going to be? Yes. In lots of ways it was. It was an exciting time. Uh, I went to uh, Perkins School of Theology. It was a very academic school, um, but it also was a very uh, caring school. And I was surrounded by three or four classes of seminarians, all of whom were very intense, very dedicated, some of whom had come out of Vietnam and come to seminary some of whom were trying to avoid seminary, uh, Vietnam by being in seminary, but others who had been called all their life to be a minister just like I was. So there was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of joy. I, I really was thrilled to, to do the reading, the study, the writings. The thing that really captured my attention was pastoral care. How do you translate theology into caring for people and dealing with how they live their lives. What kind of suffering do they have? What kind of joys do they have? What kind of directions do they need? That sort of thing. So, and then I had the opportunity for hospital experience while I was in seminary. And once I got to the hospital and was dealing with the medical side of work and the chaplaincy, I was hooked. It was just, I wanted to be a chaplain. I was going to be a chaplain. That didn't work out quite like I thought it would. My favorite seminary professor said that I needed to spend at least two years in a local church before I went to train for chaplaincy because I needed to know what the local church felt like and what the local church pastor was doing and what the people. So I spent 12 years in the local church before I went to do my seminary, I mean my uh, clinical training. Wow, I have a couple questions. Okay, one. I don't know what people study in seminary. Before I lived here, I 
lived in Cleveland and I met some uh, some men who were going through seminary for the Catholic Church. So I was kind of interested to talk to them. That's my only knowledge of it. But this is a really basic and maybe it might be a funny question. Did you have a class in like how to preach? I would imagine you study the scriptures and I, but like, you know, do you have a class on like how to preach? Do you have a class on how to provide marriage counseling? Like what were your classes? All of the above is true. The professor that was my favorite that I told you I need to be in the local church was my homiletics professor. He taught preaching. So he taught how to structure a sermon, how to prepare a sermon, how to preach a sermon. And we had to preach three or four sermons a semester in front of the class and then be critiqued by the class. Did you speak the truth? Was it understandable? Did it connect with me? How was your presentation? How was your speaking skills? How was your uh, holding yourself in the pulpit to, to capture my attention? So all that was done. He also made us do that without notes. And here's an interesting story about that. After I got out of seminary and was in the church a couple of years, I invited that same professor to come to my church and do a revival. And I'm sitting behind him one night, realizing he has notes on the pulpit. So after church, I said, Grady, you taught us to preach without notes, and here you are preaching with notes. Why do you have notes? And he said, well, Mike, I'll tell you. I'm accustomed to things happening in the congregation to disrupt stuff. And I was afraid that if anybody fainted or had a spell of some sort, I might lose my place in my sermon. And I wanted to know where to pick it up when I got to start again. <laughs> <laughs> so I teased him about having notes on his sermon. The other thing you, you asked about was uh, marital counseling or uh, any kind of counseling. We had uh, a multitude of classes on pastoral care that I'd specifically focused on. And then we had actual experiences of doing pastoral care. We might do it in a group. We might do it one-on-one -on -one with someone the professor brought in that would be filmed and then critiqued. We might do a lot of different things. I got my master's of theology in the normal way, and then I got a doctorate of ministry in pastoral care where I focused on pastoral care and counseling. And, uh, I had to do just like any other person who's considered, well, like your father and mother. Uh, they had to do an internship in order to get their stuff. I had to do an internship in order to get the practical experience under supervision for so before I could do the rest of my doctorate work. So pastoral care, that covers a lot of things, I imagine, mm -hmm. such as people, you know, are feeling something and they just want to come in and talk to you about their faith to you know maybe someone's sick and and you go to provide comfort like what would what's the full umbrella of pastoral care well we dealt a lot with grief and loss okay. which is prevalent in a lot of different situations certainly if you lose somebody somebody dies then you're going to be dealing with grief and loss and how does grief affect a person's well-being grief has some psychosomatic expressions so your stomach may hurt, your heart may beat fast, you may get unable to sleep, you may sleep all the time, you may quit eating, you may eat too much. It's different things for different people, but grieving is both theological and physical. So you learn how to deal with grief, and that grief can be from 
a death, a separation, a hurt, a guilt or a shame that you feel about something, a disappointment, or just simply not knowing your way through things. People come to ministers all the time to talk about different things where pastoral care is concerned. From, you know, I can't lose weight, I'm gaining too much weight, my husband doesn't love me, my children are drug and alcohol addicted, I lost my mother, I lost my father, I lost my job. All these things that are part of the human story are all things that ministers can help people with if they're good listeners and if they are prepared to be careful about what they say in terms of guidance. And I say that because most of the time people need to be coached to find their own answers. Some clergy give all the answers without understanding the questions. And so they've got the answers and that's all they want to do is give somebody the answer. I never thought that. I mean, if somebody came to me, we spent a lot of time listening, reflecting back, finding out what they were saying, what they were feeling, and then trying to help them find the path again so that they could walk that path without too much reliance upon the guide. Hmm. Okay, so you said that you had a fiance right before you started. Mm -hmm. When did you guys get married? <laughs> we got married in December after I came out of the Navy in September. And we went through seminary together. She got her graduate degree in education. I got my seminary degree and uh, we were together for 30 years. Wow. Mm -hmm. So you guys get married and then you both get your degrees and then you get a church placement. Mm -hmm. And you, the goal was, or the plan was maybe two years, but you said you stayed there for 12? Mm -hmm. I had two choices when I came out. Two churches wanted me. They wanted uh, me to be an associate pastor in their churches. Both were in relatively large towns and big churches with resources. And so it was a matter of, uh, I had some choice about that and, and I could choose which one I wanted to go to. When I left the first church to go to the second church, uh, there was more consultation between the district superintendent and the church that needed me than there was between me saying I want to go there. So were you an associate minister? I was for four years. And then? Uh, then I was assigned a church where I was the only pastor in the church. And you mentioned you kind of had your eye on, you know, working in a hospital mm -hmm. and doing that. So the entire time that you were at these churches, you were seeking an opportunity there or just waiting for the right opportunity to come? Or just kind of waiting and seeing what happened? I'd, yeah, I was waiting to see what happened. I had a lot of opportunities to visit in the hospitals and to experience that. Uh, I would say that a couple of things were going on. One. I realized that as a local church pastor, my hours were start to stop. And I had two young children that I was losing a lot of time with at nights after school and on weekends and all day Sunday. Sunday was miserable. So it became an invitation to look for something else. 
and I found an opportunity to join a hospital to get my training and to start and the hours would be better. There were still some on-call and late nights that I had to do, but by and large it was nine to five and only on Monday through Friday. So it was sort of a comfortable step from the local church to the hospital. What was the training that you needed to become a hospital chaplain? Well, it's like the other training I had for pastoral care. It had to be practical and it had to be didactic. So I had to have what are called four units of clinical pastoral education, which if you do it uh, full time, it's 12 weeks of full time work in a hospital where you're visiting patients, you're doing work with nurses and doctors, you're taking ER calls, you're taking death calls, you're doing, plus you're in a group of four or five other students and you're meeting two, three, four hours a week with those students talking about what you're doing with a supervisor and then you're meeting individually with that supervisor and you're talking about what's the healthcare system like? What, what do symptoms and diseases do to people? What do we understand about healing that is not clinical and scientific, but is spiritual and emotional? I'll give you an example of that. I was called in the uh, intensive care in my hospital one night, late night, because somebody was dying. And that dying was going to take a while, so I was prepared to stay there with the family for a while. And it's 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. I'm looking around in the beds around me, there's six or seven other people and they're all awake. So I figured I'm not going to just hover with that family. I'm going to check in with them, but I'm going to check in with the other people. All of them were in there for cardiac symptoms. But I discovered in the process of every one of those conversations that every one of them had lost a loved one within the last six months to a year. Mm. And they'd never had the opportunity to talk about it. So I talked to each one of those six people, and believe it or not, the next day or the day after, their symptoms were better, and they were all put out on the floor because somebody talked to them about their grief. So the psychosomatic part of the illness, the chest pains, the heart, heavy heart, the broken heart, all found some sense of healing by somebody listening to them and letting loose whatever they had been holding in all that time that they had been grieving with. Wow. Mm -hmm. So that view of healing that, you know, maybe it's not just, I don't know how to say it, strictly medical, but like you said, the psychosomatic symptoms and just needing to talk about it. Was that something that you had experienced with or kind of understood, or was this something that developed as you did your work? I had some notion of it in, in uh, the local church. I recall particularly a woman that I met in the first church I served who was constantly depressed and in the hospital with depression. And I mean constantly. So much so that the other pastors in my church didn't want to have anything to do with her. And I'd start visiting her in the hospital and I'd visit her in the house. When I'd go to her house, every curtain was drawn, everything was dark, there was nothing. And she told about losing her friend. She'd, she'd lost her husband, I knew she'd lost her husband. 
What I finally discovered after a period of time was she had been the cause of his divorce. She was his secretary. He had fallen in love with her. They had, he had divorced, got married. He had died and left her, and she was feeling guilt and shame over what was going on. Now, I never really helped her to heal completely, but I did help her to talk about her shame and her guilt enough that some portions of her world opened up again. And I began to see that and think, you know, there's something to this. Maybe, maybe that's where I really want to be with people. And then as I moved in the hospital work and the, the clinical training, I saw more and more of that taking place where um, people would come into the hospital presenting with certain symptoms but carrying an emotional burden. I certainly would agree that medicine is medicine mm -hmm. and that scientific and the clinical treatment of people is vital. You can't ignore that. There's not just uh, faith healing kind of stuff all the time. But the proper combination of pastoral care with clinical practice can bring a lot of things to bear on people to bring healing about faster and more completely and hopefully more permanently. Yeah. So you worked in the hospital for... You 15 said, years. 15 years. And did you enjoy that? Oh, yeah. I did. Did you feel like you really were where you were meant to be? I, I did feel that. I, I, I love the hospital. The only thing that, that drove me out of the hospital was I was in a setting where I felt like some of the doctors were greedy and even somewhat fraudulent, and I was a little uncomfortable with that. I also was in a place where I was stuck as a staff chaplain, and there was no more growth. My ceiling was shut, so I wanted to break the ceiling and, and, and use more of my skills. And that's when I went to the retirement community. Not so much because I wanted to work with retirees, but because I had the opportunity to organize pastoral care with a group of chaplains and grow a system rather than just be the only chaplain in the, in the hospital. Did you get lonely as the only chaplain in the hospital? Fortunately not, because I worked in a big health care system and there were 15 other chaplains in the system. Okay. I was the only chaplain in town. I had good relationships with the clergy in town. And in at least the first hospital I worked in, I had good relationships with the administrator, the nurses, and most of the doctors. It was a small town, and if something happened at the hospital that was dramatic, a uh, death, a uh, ER thing or whatever, everybody in town knew who I was. Mm. And I got questioned about it. I never revealed confidential issues, but I got questioned about it. But people knew that I was in that hospital. And I was supporting my children. <laughs> my children used to just cringe whenever we'd go to the grocery store or Walmart or someplace like that because they knew somebody was going to stop me <laughs> and talk about having been in the hospital or somebody being in the hospital, that sort of thing. But I became a, a really important part of that hospital for the 15 years I was there. I was really good in the emergency room. I'll tell you a story about that. 
in the first summer that I was there on Sunday night, I got called to the hospital because a man had had a heart attack. His wife was there. She was several years younger than he was. He died and she was beside herself. And I did what I could in the room with her. I said, as she got ready to leave, I said, is there anyone I can call for you? She said, go get my pastor. So she told me where he was. He was a little country pastor way out toward the river from where we lived. I drove out to that church from the hospital. He was preaching a sermon. And he was preaching about pointy-headed, seminary-educated clergy. And he was not very favorable. He was not very favorable. Well, I just listened as long as I could, and I told the usher, said, so-and-so's husband has died. Send this pastor out to see her after church. About two months later, maybe, someone else from his church came into the hospital dying. And this huge family gathered, and they were beside themselves, just beside themselves. This pastor came in, and you could see that he had never seen anything like that. His eyes got about this big, and it was like the deer in the headlight. And I had a choice to make. I could let him flounder, or I could help him. I took him by the hand and said, look, if you will let me, I will help you walk through this, and we'll get through it. So I took him by the hand. We addressed the situation with the family. We calmed it. We settled it down. By the time that I left that hospital, he was the best friend I ever had because he had seen that some pointy-headed seminary <laughs> preacher could actually do ministry, and he had benefited from it with his own sister. So, yeah, I mean, those things, I got support. I wasn't alone. People often ask me, said, uh, how do you stand all the sadness and all the, all the stuff that you see in the hospital? And I said, well, here's the first thing you have to understand. I don't bring it home with me. When I, when I leave the hospital at night, I leave it in the care of the nurses and doctors and other pastors in town mm -hmm. because I can't do anything else. And I've got my own family and I've got to renew my own resources to do that. And the second thing is, I know I'm called to do this work. I know that I'm good at it, and time and time again, I have proven to be the safety net below which people will not fall when they're there. They, they did an uh, interview about me in the newspaper, small little newspaper, but they asked the, one of the state patrolmen, what do you know about the chaplain? He says, oh my God. He says, when we have an accident and it's a fatality, and we get to the hospital and see that Mike is there, we are so relieved. Mm. But if he's not there, we're scared to death. <laughs> we don't know how to deal with these people. And that, that's just the way it worked. I don't want to brag, but I was able to do those kind of things that other people couldn't do because of the training I'd had. I knew how to be in a crisis situation. I knew how to be there without being afraid. I knew how to be there to bring comfort to people. And the other professionals around me came to really rely on me to do that. We had a SIDS death in the hospital one night. SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. Sudden infant death syndrome. 
and uh, it was a young couple that weren't very sophisticated and they'd only been married a little while. Her father came ranting and raving in the hospital. Where is that old boy? I'm gonna kill him. He killed my grandson, blah, 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 blah. And I stood up to him and I said, sir, you're not going into the room to see his family until you settle down and you're not gonna go in there threatening him like that or I'm not gonna let you in. Well, I'm not, no sir, you're not. You're not gonna do this. So I settled him down, I finally let him in there and the nurses said, Oh my God, do you know who that was? No, I have no idea who it was. Well, that's a man that killed somebody for doing something, took him once one time, and you stood up to him without being afraid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's not going to mess up our emergency room by threatening this poor boy. It's not his fault that the baby died. But that's, that's an opportunity to, to explain to you the difference between people. There are two SIDS deaths that summer. One Sid's death was from a family that was churched and had strong faith. This Sid's death, these people had no faith, no church, no strength at all. The difference in the coping mechanisms between the two families was night and day. Hmm. The family with faith grieved but didn't blame. The family with no faith blamed and then threatened and didn't assimilate whatever their experience was. In the hospital you have to learn and in faith you have to learn. Bad things happen to you but they're not the end of the world. Bad things happen to you but there's still place for you to stand and stand strong and be supported and comforted. People without that don't always have the resources to stand strong and, and recover from the bad things that happen to them. Or they tend to blame and spew it out against everybody else. Just a difference. And I help to try to help people like the family with faith in everything I did. Mm. Wow. So you really made a difference in the hospital. I think I did. Do you, do you know the person who took over for you after you left? Like, mm -hmm. did you help train them? Uh, I actually supervised him for a short period of time. So then you were able to kind of pass that, that hospital off to mm -hmm. able hands, and then you went to the retirement community, mm -hmm. and forgive me if you've already told me, you were seeking a different position so you could... I was seeking more of a supervisory uh, position and, and develop a program in a different relationship. In the hospital where I'd been, we'd gotten to the point where we saw our patients at the most three or four days, most of the time. So the development of a long-term relationship was very limited. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I went to the retirement community was that I believed that I would develop relationships with people over a period of time that might extend into years. Mm -hmm. And I was beginning to need in my life some constancy of relationship. Coming in every day, knocking on a door, saying, hello, I'm the chaplain, and waving goodbye to you in three days, and maybe not seeing you again, that had gotten old. Mm -hmm. I needed I needed more stability, so I went to the retirement community. They were they were going to build a staff. Uh, I was going to get to be in relationship with other people. I had a better job offer, and I just needed the personal change. It was time for personal change, so I did that and found that while I was a little bit uncomfortable, first of all, being with retired people. In time, I grew to really appreciate being with retired people. Why were you uncomfortable? 
My mother and daddy had been in a retirement community down in Texas. And when I'd go to visit them, we'd eat in the dining room and I'd see this lady over to the other table who was one of the residents and she was table hopping and she was gossiping all around the table about all the older people. <laughs> and I thought, I don't want any part of that. I don't want any part of that. But in time, I, I came to understand that that was an exception rather than a rule. And that uh, the stories that the people in retirement communities have are extraordinary. I mean, I've got stories about my retirement people I could tell you all day long about the things they've done and, and the ways they've lived their lives and the kinds of accomplishments they've had in their lives. And it just, I've got six or eight books in there that were biographical books written by people who were my residents in the retirement community, mm. telling about what they had accomplished in their lives. So yeah, uh, by the time I left Philadelphia and retired, um, I had four chaplains in five or six communities. And I had made an impact upon the organization as a whole, as well as upon the individual facilities with their chaplains in place. When, when did you know that it was the right time for you to retire? <laughs> That's a bit of a personal question. Um, I'd married the second time when I went to Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And the marriage was breaking apart. I was not going to stay in Philadelphia when my family was still down here. Mm -hmm. So I felt like that if I was not going to be able to maintain the marriage, I would come back home. And I was, at that point, 66. So Thanksgiving before I retired, I came home to talk about it with my son. Now, I have a four-year-old grandson at that point in time. And he's just a delight. So my bags are packed. I'm ready to come back to Philadelphia. I uh, put the bag in the car, and he comes and he throws his arms around my knees. And he says, Granddad Mike, I'm going to dream about you every night until you come back. Well, that's all it took. <laughs> that's all it took to realize family was here and it was time to retire. And so I came home the next summer. Wow. What was your last day like? My last day? Uh, bittersweet. They had a big party for me. All the residents were there. Most of the staff was there. They gave me gifts and had speeches and all this kind of stuff. And then I had to respond and I teared up a little bit. I left a woman up there who was probably the closest thing to a sister I ever had. I left some people up there who had been my strongest personal support during the divorce and who I still feel almost as close to as I felt to my own mother. It was hard to, you know, say goodbye, shake hands with everybody individually. Uh, it was a little harder even though to uh, see all that group of people wondering what life was going to be like after I left and I was wondering what life was going to be like when I left them. Then finally I walked out and I was glad. Wow. And then you got in a car and drove down and oh, yeah. started something new again. <laughs> I, did. I did. I already had an opportunity when I got to town to consult in another retirement community about putting together a pastoral care program. So I, I didn't step 
out of it totally when I got here. Mm-hmm. I had a year to be a consultant. I wasn't the primary caregiver, but I was a consultant for a year. And I still feel like I would like to be a part of the healthcare chaplaincy. When COVID hit last year, and it looked like you know we were going to be just swarmed in every hospital with all kinds of deaths, I wanted to find a hospital that'd take me back and let me work part time for them or whatever. Of course, they shut down all that system, and my wife didn't feel comfortable with me going into a COVID situation. But I stayed in touch with my friends who were chaplains throughout that whole process, and I consulted with a few of them. I let the others know that I was praying for them or remembering them, or they could talk to me whenever they needed to. This goes, and so I, I maintained contact. I still work with the Methodist Church about the process of bringing chaplains in. If a Methodist minister wants to be a chaplain, they have to submit to a series of writings and interviews in order to be what are called endorsed before they can be certified by another body. So I do that two or three times a year, meet with young candidates and read their papers and think about what kind of questions they need to do and then help guide them toward how they're going to complete their process of certification. So I keep my hand in it. I'm, I'm not. I'm. I'm not retired. Retired. Well, my next question was going to be, you know, you've had this calling your entire life, and even though you're formally retired from full-time work in ministry, do you still feel that call, and are you answering it in other ways? I know you're still involved, as you just mentioned. My. Spiritual life, in some respects, is deeper than it was because I was so busy. Mm-hmm. I was doing things and not being things. Now I have time to reflect on some things. I've often thought, if I went back to a local church right now, what I would do differently, because I think I did some things in the local church that probably was not good for the young families. I ask too many young families to be too engaged and not pay attention to their own families. I, I tried to do too many things that were about building a church and not building a faith life or a spiritual life. And in, in retrospect, I think I would approach spiritual development, spiritual formation differently. I would like to preach occasionally again, but I haven't had the opportunity. I'm with a, a new church here in the neighborhood where I'd like to serve communion on Sunday mornings. I'd like to read the scripture, maybe be invited to preach and maybe do Bible study. I'd love to do that again. I'm not, yes, I'm always called. I will remain called to the day I die. Whether or not I get to express pastoral ministry is another matter. But I'm in relationship with two young pastors, specifically in my family. And I don't try to overwhelm them, but I do let them know that I care about them and that my experience might be beneficial for them if they want to use it. And same thing's true with the chaplains that I still see. And I have one, men- one protege in Philadelphia that still calls me periodically when she needs some advice or some decisions to make. 
I would do a wedding. I've done a funeral. I've done a wedding since I got to town. And I've got my two grandchildren and her two grandchildren that I will do my best to influence in Christian life throughout their growth. If you could talk to someone who maybe just isn't really connected to a faith community or faith at all, what would you just say to them? Which I know is a very broad question, <laughs> but you know, some people are raised in it and that's their way in. But I feel like at the moment, there are a lot of people who don't have that experience with growing up in a church or maybe have left it. And they're, I don't know, if you could reach out to them or just tell them one thing, what might you say? I would have a hard time understanding how they think they can live in this world as we know it today without some sense of faith and some sense of there's something larger than whatever we're looking at in our jobs or our families or making a living or making a lot of money because that's ultimately not going to be satisfying. There will come a time in everybody's life when they are challenged. And if you don't have some larger than whatever you are in your life, meeting that challenge is going to be harder and could be deadly. But if you have faith and conviction, if you have a background, if you have a community of faith that you belong to, there will be somebody there to support you and lift you up and you won't have to carry that burden alone. That might not be very convincing to a lot of people, but I do believe that. The same minister that I told you about the notes joined a Sunday school class when he and his wife were about my age and retired. I said to him, I said, Grady, you and Rowena have been in churches all your life, and you, but you haven't, since you've been a professor, been to church very much. He said, yeah, I know. I said, how come you joined the church? I mean, a Sunday school class. Well, Mike. We decided that we need to be somewhere that if one of us died, there was somebody else to bring the biscuits to the house. And you think about that. He knew he needed the support system or she would need the support system if they lost each other. And they needed to have somebody with a relationship and not just somebody came in on the spur of the moment to be important to them. Being in church from marriage, from birth, whatever, is an investment. You're putting things in so that when you take it out, it's there for you to take out. If you don't put it in, you can't take it out. Mm. That's fair. Nobody to bring the biscuits. <laughs> Just a few more questions. What did you enjoy most about being a minister? It's the meeting of the people. It's, it's being a part of people's lives. It's realizing how many different people there are and how many different ways of being people there are. So that there's always something new. It's very seldom that you get into same old, same old if you're really alert to it. There's a new person to meet, there's a new experience to have, there's a new insight to share or have shared with you. There's an optimism about that that is important to me. I'm not a pessimistic person with regard to the church or the future of the world. I think that 
Uh, God's purpose is going to be revealed, but I believe there's enough good in all of us that we're going to uh, find that good together somewhere, somehow. And so, yes, I think that's, um, that may be the most enjoyable. What do you think people don't understand about ministers? That we're real people. Uh, we're not saints, but we're not the worst sinners either. That if they will give us a chance to be a real person, we can be a real person. But we need, we need our family time. We need spouses that are not expected to be partners in ministry, but are expected and allowed to be a spouse to us like everybody else's spouse is. That we, and this is practical, but important, we need as much money to live on as anybody else. I had a friend in ministry early in my life who was on the committee that set salaries. And he said it was, he understood it was his, it was God's job to keep me holy and his job to keep me poor. And I thought, come on, you don't mean that. We're the same age, I went to school with your wife, you won't keep me poor. And people don't understand that ministers have families that they have to raise and a livable wage is as important to them as it is to anybody else. And when, when the minister is struggling with finances, everything else is gonna be a struggle. Resentment's gonna build up, anger's gonna build up. He's gonna deal with people differently according to how they support that. So yeah, I think people really need to understand we're real people with real needs and our financial needs are every bit as important to us as, as theirs are to them. That's really, really fair, and not something that I've, I've heard much. If someone is feeling that call to be a minister, what would you encourage them or tell them to think about? I would encourage them to spend a lot of time in prayer. I would encourage them to find three or four or five people who are in the ministry who will be able to talk about the life of ministry with them so that they get a real clear picture of what they're getting into. And so that they get a sense of the, not the job of ministry, but the vocation of ministry. Because when, when you're in, when you answer a call, you're coming into a vocation. But if you're just kind of piddling at it, you may just be doing a job. If you're not happy, if you can't find a way out, you may just be doing a job. You don't need to be doing a job. You need to be meeting your vocation. Certainly there are things that you might read, but I don't think just reading a book is gonna help you figure it out. I think the best thing is talking to somebody who's there, who knows about it, and who can help you see it before you make a decision that you may not be ready to make. And to be patient. You don't have to do it today. I made it 14. My mother knew better. She knew I shouldn't be making my call known that early. And it cost me. And I could have just as easily waited till I was 18 or 20. But I was filled with the Spirit, as they say, and just had to go about declaring my call. I've lived it the rest of my life, but I've struggled with it parts of my life. 
Did you ever almost leave? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Couple times. Once when I was really struggling with financial issues, I was, I was living in a city where around me there were lots of people who were making tons of money being financial advisors, selling stocks and bonds. And before I went to the hospital, I actually studied to be a stock broker. Hmm. Got up to the point where I was to take the test, got to the testing site that day, and the ticket that I had to have for admission had not come, couldn't get in, and I had the job offer at the hospital, so I turned back to the hospital and became a chaplain instead of being a stockbroker. Providential, I think, truly. I think God knew what he was doing to keep that ticket out of my hands and keep me out of that testing site. Wow. What is prayer to you? Oh, wow. <laughs> Maybe a simpler question is... No, I've, I've, I've got an answer for you, but it's, it's going to sound strange. Prior to retirement, prayer was something I did more in public at a pulpit or in a hospital room with a patient or a family. Prayer is a sense of trying to connect the needs of that person to the sense and awareness that God's out there and that he has power and he is a comforter. It was much more public. I have four or five pages on my computer where every time I read about prayer now, I copy that quote and put it down. Because prayer is becoming more personal and more private. It is still communication with God. It is still a sense of praying for direction and sustenance. Oddly enough, I was in a group the other day and we were talking about prayer and I was saying, I have a lot of distractions in my prayers. I can't just sit at a table or kneel or anywhere and just pray a straight line because all these distractions come into my head. After a period of time of thinking about that, particularly since COVID, I began to realize maybe it's the distractions I need to be praying about. It's not what I bring the agenda to, it's what is impinging upon my mind when I'm praying, maybe that's what I need to be praying about. And so prayer is dialogue. Prayer is conversation. It may not always be clear God's answering the prayer that he's in the dialogue where you can really tangibly say he's there, but it is dialogue. And so I'm learning about prayer probably more so now than at any point in my life. There have been times when I've been in doubt or in fear, and I've prayed personally more than I have other times. But it's transitioned from a very public prayer life to a more private prayer life as I've retired. Last question. What is one thing you really love about yourself? About me? Mm-hmm. that I'm as healthy and feel as good as I do at my age. That 
I have lived this long and am reasonably fit, mostly healthy, and still energetic. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I've, I've so thoroughly enjoyed have you? chatting with you. Yeah, I really have. Good. <laughs> I could keep asking you questions for a really long time, but we'll just stop here. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening. Feel free to leave a comment about this conversation, maybe what you're taking with you from it. Make sure to check out the other conversations if you haven't already too. You can also send me a message if you have a story to share. I'd love to hear it. I'll be working on a new series soon and you could be a part of it. Sending good your way. Until next time, take good care.